A promoter makes a challenge to the marks. If anybody can beat my brother in a fight, you'll win a lot of money. Are we doing another carnival episode? No, we're talking about the first UFC. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Are you there, world? It's me, Nick. It's Nick from Pro Wrestling History Nerds, professional wrestling promoter, booker, but for the moment, and more importantly, I am a professional wrestling history nerd. We are back with another episode, and if you're not excited now, you better be, and you will be momentarily. And I'm here with the Starsky to my hutch. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man? I am looking for Snoop Dogg. Where is that pimp with my money? Hello, nerds. Welcome to the TARDIS party of pro wrestling historyfication. And if you're wondering why we sound so goddamn excited, it's because we are having an amazing topic of discussion today. It's going to be fucking fantastic, but we're also excited because the world is opening up and professional wrestling is coming back in a big way. And that's what we do. That's our main thing in life. Professional wrestling is our livelihood, is our main interest. It is why other people, the normal people, when we start talking, they walk away wondering what the hell our problem is because we are so fucking excited. We can barely contain it. I hope you feel that and you're going to feel it through this whole episode because we have a crazy one for you today. Yes, we are the proverbial boy with the stars in our eyes and the wonder under the lights and the magic is real because I am taken back to a time in a young Chongo's life when I was a, a wee Chongo looking up at these gladiators and learning and experiencing for the first time the thing that would define my path in this world, man. And and, and I'm excited, brother. And if you wonder what it is we're talking about, what we're so excited about, we're going to talk about the very first Ultimate Fighting Championship. And you may be saying, hey, guys, I thought this was a pro wrestling podcast. Well, if you have been paying attention to all the swerves and the days of legitimate wrestling and all the cons and scams and carnival shows and bullshit... You're going to hear a lot of familiar stories. You're going to hear a lot of things that sound like something that would have happened back in those days because the overlap of the early days, we don't want to call it MMA. MMA did not exist at the time. It was a NHB, Valley to Doe, a clash of styles, a street fighter come to life. It was a completely different animal, a completely different way to market it. And the overlap with professional wrestling back in the day is a Venn diagram with 99% overlap. And it is just so much fun to talk about. The early UFC was not mixed martial arts. It was style. It was presented as style versus style to determine the dominant individual style, which was presented as the platform that... Jiu-Jitsu dominated and then gave birth to what we now know as MMA. But the fact is, this is some carny shit, man. We're talking, we're talking setting up hippodromes. We're talking about putting people in optimal matchups to, to influence the outcome. We're talking about picking the opponents for the show, tailor-made to the guy that you got in there. We're talking about working in the, the oldest sense, man. Because this ties into what we talked about in our last episode when we covered the movie Bloodsport and the bullshit story behind it. Because up until this point, martial arts and martial arts bullshit, bullshito, if you will, uh, the, the term has been coined quite often, 
was just pro wrestling with a gi on or with a frog button jacket on. Martial arts was 99% bullshit of people only working with their friends so they looked good and refusing challenges from people who would make them look bad. And if that's not pro wrestling, I don't know what it is. Everybody was full of shit. Everybody was afraid to put their reputation on the line. The internet didn't exist. Nobody could call each other out and, you know, objectively prove that they were lying their asses off. Again, that is pro wrestling in the kayfabe days. We would, you know, there was the leaks. There were the people who would expose the masters and say, you know what? I don't think Eagle Kung Fu is going to get you very far in a fist fight. But then there were 15 movies that made it look fucking badass. Again, the similarities between martial arts and pro wrestling up until the 90s was profound. And one of the topics and one of the themes of this show we like to talk about is that we go out of our way to get the best research, read the best books, the watch the best interviews to bring the best information to you possible. So there might be some times if you are an old UFC fan and you might say, hey, dummies, I think you got that wrong. You know what? There's a possibility. I am doing the best I can with the information fighters give. And there, you know, we all know there's nothing uh, more uh, dishonest than a fighter explaining a loss or a bad performance. It's pro wrestling, baby, even though it's not technically pro wrestling. But before we can get to the actual day, that that fantastic day here in Denver, Colorado, we're here in Denver, Colorado. I actually almost went to this show. Uh, I was a martial arts kid, of course, and a friend of mine said, hey, me and my dad are going to a karate show in Denver. And uh, I thought it was like sabaki or something like that. I was like, no way, man. I've been doing Muay Thai for a couple of months. That stuff is lame. They don't even punch each other in the face. So I said, no, thank you. And I stayed home and played Zelda or whatever dumb shit I did at that age. How old were you at this time? Um, I want to say 14 or 15. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I was just I was just like, oh, no, that that full contact karate stuff is lame. It's not the real deal like what I'm doing where I'm getting elbowed in the face by grownups all the time and go home crying because I'm hurt. I didn't know what it was. I said, no, thank you. And I regret that to this day because when I saw it on VHS, I was blown away. I made sure I went with them to the second one. That's a story for another time. But this thing was a sea change of unimaginable magnitude. The world, not just the martial arts world, but the world changed because of what happened there that day. Everything changed from entertainment to the way professional fighting was booked to the way professional wrestling was booked. It exposed what a legitimate shoot fight looks like at that time compared to a work. It And also people saw the validity in styles that they had no idea even existed. At that time, you would have told me what jujitsu was. I would have thought it was a variant of Kung Fu with striking. And I would have not known the difference. It, it exposed on mass scale the variance of martial arts. And it also really, really propelled jujitsu to the forefront of the fight game. I had never heard of jujitsu. Well, I've heard of jujitsu. But jujitsu to me was that like wrist locks in a gi, uh, something the nerds who didn't know how to throw a punch did, yeah. something closer to, you know, the original Japanese uh, jujitsu where it was like that overlap of 
not knowing how to punch in a Western boxing or Thai boxing sense. Everything was still kind of based on defense against a overhead sword or a halberd strike to disarm and throw the person on the ground. It was based on samurai battlefield techniques, not modern street fighting. Being a fucking shitty attitude uh, teenager, I had no respect for it until I saw these tapes or until I watched the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in action tapes before the UFC 1 VHS came out. And if you are wondering, where did all this come from? How did we get to a UFC? Because for the most part, people thought about the uh, the big like style versus style tournaments in the sense of movies like Bloodsport, what we talked about yeah. last time, or various other movies like that. It was all very cinematic. It was all very dramatic. It wasn't the real deal, but gosh darn it, if it wasn't so much fun to watch. Yeah, Enter the Dragon and that template of martial artists competing in a tournament to determine who had the dominant style. And that is a very romanticized idea in our movie and pop culture coming up. So when someone presented a legitimate version of essentially the kumite, style versus style, full contact, a wrestler versus a boxer, taekwondo versus judo, it was so fascinating because no one had actually seen what happens when you put this shit together. What works, what doesn't. There was no filter for the Bushido, like you said, and what is legitimate. It was a circus freak idea. There had been mixed match styles before. Uh, Gene LaBelle was involved in one against a boxer. There was the famous uh, Anoki versus Ali. versus Ali, but it always seemed to fall apart. Same thing. There was uh, at one point they were trying to put together Jack Dempsey versus Ed Strangler Lewis. Yeah. But at a certain point, either the reputation of one fighter gets a little too heavy for a promoter to bear or for the fighter to bear because nobody wants to lose their meal ticket by either A, being embarrassed by somebody from another style, or the promoter pulls the plug because they, or the manager pulls the plug because they don't want to see their fighter beaten in a humiliating sense. There was a newspaper article I found from the 20s where it was like, what would happen if Strangler fought Dempsey? And it was like, if Dempsey can land this punch, this would happen. If Strangler can get a hold of Dempsey's legs, this would happen. It was actually very educated for the time. Yeah. I was very surprised by it, but... Usually it would either not happen or it would end up like Anoki Ali, where every rule that or uh, allowance that they were going to have on techniques yeah. gets stripped away to protect uh, essentially Ali. So then Anoki had no weapons going into the fight and it just turned into this weird, bizarre, you know, boot scoot kicking Ali's legs because most of his tools were taken away because Muhammad Ali's handlers didn't want to put their you know, their, their, their meal ticket at risk. And what's interesting about that, that we know now with the uh, uh, gift of hindsight is that that did permanent damage to Ollie. The blood clots that he sustained in his legs were directly responsible for so many of, of the start of the spiral of his downfall of his athletic career. And that was purely a byproduct of them hedging the bet with the rules and sort of setting up the fight to try to keep it out of Anoki's wheelhouse, which ultimately led him to just throw in a bunch of leg kicks on a boxer that had no idea how to defend. So at the end of that, his lead leg was permanently traumatized on a neurological level. He had blood clots. 
he had he had issues that would haunt him for the rest of his career because of that fight. And that's the sort of thing you do see in Muay Thai. You do see that in modern MMA. But the, you know, Muhammad Ali had no idea how to defend against the one non-boxing tool that Anoki had left in his toolbox after everything was stripped away by the rules. When styles clash, because especially up until this point, so many martial arts were based on reputation and theory. You had instructors that wouldn't let you spar full contact or no punches to the face, various rules that kept it from being a real fight through light contact, uh, protective rules, because it was more important for the students to keep paying their $100 a month in tuition to train there than for them to find out whether what they were learning is real or not. And you also had that conversation because now when we talk about modern MMA, it's all about this guy versus this guy, style versus style, because MMA has developed into a hybrid sport where everybody trains every technique. It's hybridized. Everybody is learning the best way to set up an arm bar, their top game, their, their striking. It doesn't resemble what was happening in these days whatsoever, because back in those days, it was what would happen if a Taekwondo black belt fought a ninja? These are more the conversations you have from kids watching bad movies at two in the morning and playing Street Fighter 2 until the Mountain Dew ran out. This wasn't a real conversation being had in the martial arts world other than weird what if articles in the back of Black Belt magazine. Until it was that faithful day when they set up that cage in 93, the, the level of showmanship that was proposed and the amount of the carny elements that we have gone over in depth in previous episodes that are totally applicable to this first UFC is really astonishing. And I'm really excited because really what this shows is the infinite levels of gray between a shoot, a legitimate competition and a work because it doesn't just have to be a work in the sense that we think of as like a WWE predetermined everything is, you know, Guys are working together. One guy could be in on the fix. There's so many layers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Are you talking about a hippodrome? No, wait, wait, wait. No, I wasn't talking about. I was talking about a hippodrome. Oh, see, I want to. Let's do it again. Ready? A A hippodrome. Yes, we're going to get that down. It's like two guys doing a white guy high five handshake. Yes. Chongo digresses. And in order to get to that actual night in McNichols Arena in Denver, Colorado, we first have to take a huge step back to 1978 when Horion Gracie moved to California to pursue work in television and movies. Horion Gracie, son of Helio Gracie, you know, he was a he was a very handsome, charismatic man. He looked good on camera. Hey, you know what? After maybe a drink or two, I might have even hit that if it was on the table. He had that it factor. And he was able to get bit parts in movies, television, being a background actor. But he got his first real break in 1987 when Richard Donner wanted a unique style to the fights in his new movie, Lethal Weapon. And his second assistant director, Willie Simmons, introduced him to what was then called Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And soon enough, Horion was training Mel Gibson and Gary Busey for the fight scenes. Once the word got out and he got introduced to enough people, movie and TV stars began to flock to the fledgling Torrance Gracie Academy. 
and maybe even earlier when it was just him with some mats uh, in his garage doing private training. And soon enough, his brothers Hickson, Hoyce, and Hoyler had moved to the United States. And these are names that now are legendary in the world of martial arts and mixed martial arts. But back then, nobody had any idea who these guys were. They were struggling, trying to teach the arts that their family had developed, and nobody here knew about until that movie came out. Yes, the first representation of jujitsu as we know it in any American film is Lethal Weapon, and that is Mel Gibson's character's like secret style. It was utilized much more as you would think of like a Seagal, Aikido kind of thing, wrist locks and imbalances and, and joint reversals, but it was the genesis of showing joint manipulation as a viable combat style. And he made even bigger contacts during Lethal Weapon 3 when he was co-training Rene Russo for the fight scenes with a karate instructor. Rene Russo badly injured herself trying to throw a high kick, which she wasn't used to doing, in jeans. And after that, she would only work with Horion. She would only let him uh, you know, be her partner to be thrown on screen because jujitsu despite what it can be what can be done to limbs and neck is very safe to practice it is very safe to uh you know to 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 demonstrate if you have somebody who knows what they're doing much like in pro wrestling everybody walks away with uh without a scratch on them and can go back tomorrow and do it the same way as opposed to you know the striking arts where sometimes a stuntman gets his eyeball kicked out, or in Rene Russo's case, she strains her groin muscle terribly. There's a reason they call it the gentle art, despite the violence. Yeah, and it's also the reason that you can train jujitsu pretty much every day until you're elderly. It's a no impact, zero contact sport. What I mean by that is it's a passive contact. There's no blows. There's no physicality when you engage in contact with your opponent. The emphasis is on technique and minimal application of strength. And when you work with someone that really is mastered in the art, it really shows you how helpless you can feel because this person is not expending any muscle and they are just moving you like a baby. And this is when Horion brought a concept to the United States, which existed already in different forms, whether it was the carnival challenge when the wrestler was on stage challenging the townies to last 15 minutes with them for $20, or crazy people doing a dojo storm to prove their superiority, he issued what became known as the Gracie Challenge. Once again, it goes back to like a Kung Fu instructor sitting up a platform in this village saying, I will fight the other Kung Fu masters and we will see who really knows what and can do what. But he took it to another level by challenging people to either A, beat them up and show me that you are the real deal, or B, make ludicrous challenges that won't be met so you can then declare them cowards and again benefit from their refusal to fight you. This is a move the Gracie family learned from their original teacher, Mitsuyo Maeda, the judoka pro wrestler who spread the art of judo in similar fashion. They followed this tradition with open-door challenges, with cash prizes if you won, but they were very smart and recorded the matches, and then put them out on VHS as Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in action. And part of that uh, contract of that fight was that if they won, they got to keep the footage and use it as they saw fit. And that was very 
specific language in the way that they set those Gracie challenges up. And that's how they could use that film. And then they would pick matches and cherry pick those opponents based on the styles to really hedge their bets in those fights. And for those of you who have not seen these, these videos were very rough because they were just raw consumer video footage of Valley Chudo rules fights. But I think that it was part of their charm. You felt like you were watching something dangerous, forbidden, and totally fucking awesome. I remember watching these as a kid, watching these, you know, challenge matches where it was just an all or nothing fight in a tiny, you know, dojo room and being like, holy shit, this is not the movies I am used to. I need to know more. Oh, yeah. It was like someone snuck a hidden camera into Fight Club. It was one of the first times I remember feeling uncomfortable watching something like on TV in my entire life because it was real. And you would see the positioning and the grinding that would happen in grappling that was so unfamiliar when you talk about like freestyle and positional wrestling the style of submission grappling, the, the level of intimacy of that style of violence. When you're striking, it's pretty. You're away from the guy. It can look beautiful. It can look poetic. This is ugly. This is dragging somebody into water and drowning them without water. And it was really, really eye-opening and just staggering to see as a, I was about 10 at this time. It was wild, man. And in addition to those tapes kind of going wide on the martial arts underground, Horion's story came to the attention of his future partner, Art Davis, through an interview Horion did in Playboy. They met, they shared ideas, they shared passions, they had an idea, and they shopped it around with the goal of TV on their minds. Every door was shut in their faces until they met Campbell McLaren, who gave national distribution to the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and Action Tapes through his company, Semaphore Entertainment Group. Let's keep in mind that when they were going around trying to sell this concept to TV, pay-per-view, cable, whatever, they were not interested in creating a new sport or even transporting Valley Chudo from Brazil to America as a sport. They were looking to make Gracie Jiu-Jitsu the hottest property in the martial arts world. This was an infomercial. This was about selling their product with a no-holds-barred tournament as the infomercial as pay-per-view. This is why they went with Hoyce out of all the fighters in the family. He was skinny, in his mid-20s, and very unassuming at first glance. They wanted to show the skinny brother of the family beating everyone's asses so the average jerk watching at home can see themselves in his place defeating boxers and muscled up wrestlers. It was a brilliant move. Oh yeah, it was astonishing because that guy looked like my dad. To give you an idea, Hoist Gracie's like 163 pounds wearing what looks like a bathrobe at the time. It looked like he was in his karate outfit because we didn't know better. We didn't know that that was a weapon. And he's probably he was probably, what, the only fighter under 200 pounds in the whole first UFC, right? That actually makes sense. I think he was the only one in that weight difference. Because even um, our Jimerson, who was probably the next smallest, was 20 pounds heavier than him. He might have been under 200, but not by much. But they wanted to get the attention of everyone. So they put ads in black belt seeking fighters. But they did the brilliant move where they challenged big name fighters like Dennis Alexio, Benny Urquidez, Stan Legionitis, uh, Rick Rufus, Maurice Smith, Bart Vale, 
George Dillman, Gene LaBelle, Rob Kamen, Peter Ertz, Ernesto Hoos, and uh, Masaki Satake. They reached for the top shelf fighters, knowing they wouldn't take such a risk for such a tiny payday with such a weird, carny, unknown bunch of weirdos trying to put this thing together. Because you say, I will fight any of you. You need to come down here and prove yourself to me. And when they don't, you get to declare yourself the toughest because they didn't show up. Yeah, it's kind of a it's a it's a smart tactic because it's a win win. You either get this big name on your show or much more likely they don't come. And then you can claim that they they were scared to to see your style. And that was a brilliant tactic. But they did have some very high level competitors that they very strategically left off this first card, man. Yeah, there was a lot of people that because here's the thing. It's easy to kind of be a little bit dismissal of Hoist Gracie because he kind of like faded and vanished once mixed martial arts took off, became a codified sport. He definitely made some good paydays in Japan with mixed results, but he really didn't put himself out there, especially in America, the way you think they would. So a lot of people kind of dismissed him as being you know, just just essentially a, uh, a novelty act that never caught up to the sport. But at the time, he was a third degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I don't care who you are. You could be the worst third degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You know, you're like the other third degree black belt sit at the cool kid table and they tell you you can't sit with them. So you have to go sit with, the, with some other nerds. If you don't know the first thing about grappling, which is what most of the fighters on this show were a third degree black belt, even a mediocre one is going to tear through you like fucking nothing. And while that is true, you do got to give the devil their due because while he is a third degree black belt, he is also like inarguably the runt of the litter and the least imposing and the least uh, special competitor out of the Gracie brothers. They could have used Hickson. They could have used, they, that was a big gamble. They used the least dangerous brother. They used the runt of the litter to emphasize the effectiveness of the art. And that could have backfired big time, but he showed that a third degree black belt will absolutely tear any other style apart once they are in their range of effectiveness. And in the presentation of this show they were planning, they wanted something striking something extreme and eye-catching, something to make it an absolute spectacle beyond what they already had planned. Uh, McLaren, for example, wanted it to be like a live moral combat, not sure how the fatalities would work, or maybe the babalities, but it was a hot property at the time, so of course they tried to reference the video game tournament format, which were then based on blood sport, so it's all kind of tying into what we talked about last time. Um, it was Horion student and Conan the Barbarian director, John Milius, who suggested the cage. R. Davis tried to take it a step further and suggested barbed wire on top of it, but thankfully that idea was shot down early in the planning stage. They had their concept. They had their plan. Now they just needed to fine-tune things for a pay-per-view. Yeah, and they also wanted alligators, man. They wanted to go big time, and they, they ended up settling on the cage, which has become iconic and the standard that we know today. But yeah, they wanted barbed wire. They wanted alligators. It was going to be the most ridiculous show of combat and spectacle that the world had ever seen. And it was to set the table to promote Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. 
And now we need to take a few moments before we talk about the actual show to talk about the concept of a work versus stacking the deck. Because there have been people who have been saying, oh, it was pretty much a fixed fight because these guys didn't know anything about grappling. And yes, that is true, but that doesn't necessarily make it fixed because anything can truly happen in a fight. There is the puncher's chance, as they say. And yes, they overlooked a lot of people who could have beaten Hoist. They also didn't have much money to offer the top name fighters in the world, both in boxing and kickboxing, because why would some K-1 level kickboxer take an enormous pay cut to fight this weird carny sounding thing that didn't even sound like it was real or it was going to happen and have to do it bare knuckle under rules that they weren't even very well defined. No professional athlete at the top of their game was going to take a risk like that. Very few boxers or kickboxers are willing to take that risk now because of the amount of money involved and the risk to their image and their career. So you're very much left with a, uh, a bit of a freak show, a bit of a carnival atmosphere. You really have to get the Barker out there hyping up the crowd to make this thing sound awesome. But stacking the deck doesn't necessarily mean it's a fix. It just means that the, uh, the odds are definitely in one person's favor, very much like the old carnival days of catch as catch can wrestling. And there's a fine line there because that is completely valid and legitimate in certain aspects of the fight game. You talk about bringing up a young, talented prospect. You don't want to put him in deep water too early. You give him a challenge that is appropriate to the level. So you, in a way, you are not throwing them to the wolves. You are giving them a matchup that is winnable, uh, a goal that is obtainable. And so there really is a gray area there between giving somebody what we would call a tomato can or a jobber and giving somebody a stylistic optimal fight. And this was a bit of both, especially because no one else at the at the highest level of their martial art was willing to go into this first one. We had one of the best jujitsu representatives and no one at their respective martial art was at the same tier that the Gracies were. And this was very much in the vein of the old carnival shows or the burlesque shows or like the type of carnival things, you know, we talked about in the Mildred Burke episode or the Frank Gotch episode or a carnival wrestling episode. Even William Muldoon would do the, the open challenge at the end of the night to the crowd. This is more in that vein where somebody knows the tricks, somebody knows the trade, somebody knows the rules, the strategy, and they invite some jerk off to come step into their realm appealing to their ego and uh, their their desire for the payday, whichever way it is. But you are, you're not really omitting the facts. You're just not bragging about them. You're leaving out the the history of what you are doing and what you have done in every town working your way through the Midwest. So the Gracie challenge and the carnival circus challenge without, you know, the stick in the crowd to do a worked match and, a, you know, a double cross here and there didn't really exist at this point because everybody was a fucking mark in the traditional carnival sets. These were people who took the baits, they stepped in, agreed to things that they were not actually ready for because they were the marks. They were the ones without the information. They didn't have the internet. They weren't finding 
Valley Tudo videos from Brazil. They weren't watching Gracie Jiu Jitsu in action. These were guys who were kickboxers, boxers, Taekwondo guys who have been gassed up by their own coaches to think they can handle anything, but they've been fighting under restrictive rules that did not allow grappling and they thought they were ready for anything and they sure as fucking shit were not. Once again, it's carnival times. It's a carnival strategy because as we've talked about many times, uh, you know, not on recording, we both know many people who could have beaten Hoist Gracie even at that dollar amount back in those days. Oh, yeah. I have, I have been personally told the story from Matt Hume, who Joe Rogan considers the greatest MMA coach in the world today, that he was denied entry into the first UFC Chose he uh, Ken Shamrock was chosen over him because the truth, in his opinion, he was too dangerous himself. Militich, there was a couple guys that had put in for that first spot for the uh, for the Pancras spot, and they chose Ken Shamrock because he was the most visually imposing but the least actually threatening. There was there was still a catch wrestling tradition in the United States. Not a lot of people really think about that. But there was still a grappling, anything goes tradition. There was also the um, the influence that we talked about in the uh, Pancreation episode, where Greek martial arts were trying to be resynthesized from existing martial arts to create that totality of combat as early as the 70s. There really wasn't very good competition in the United States to do so because, once again, thanks to Hollywood, thanks to mythology... Kung Fu, karate, everybody was doing the things they wanted to see on the movies. Not a lot of people wanted to compete under, you know, what were like essentially advertised as to the death type of shit. So the people who were claiming that were the people who uh, you couldn't exactly trust, like we talked about in our Bloodsport episode, where you had people crawling out of the woodwork in the pre-internet era to explain how they uh, killed 47 men in a tournament in Thailand that nobody heard of. And that's how they won a sword that they sold to, uh, you know, rescue orphans from pirates. It was a land of bullshit. Not necessarily many martial arts artists fault because they were just listening to their instructor, trusting the person who was teaching them to punch kick. Sure. And they had that ultimate, there was, there was, for those of you who have not done martial arts, the coach, I will even say like, you know, sensei, because sensei, sensei really, Sifu, yeah. yeah, sensei, Sifu, there really is almost a mythical level of respect where you believe this person, whether it sounds like bullshit or not, because there was no test. Everything was competed inside the rules of that martial art. So karate instructors yes. would teach their students that karate was the best because they were competing in karate, even though there was no grappling or there was no punches to the face or they never competed against a boxer who knew how to fucking work angles with footwork and light them up from uh, the side. You didn't have the dose of reality. You listened to your instructor and it was very almost cult-like in that level of trust, belief, complete acceptance of a way of life that once it hits reality, like it did this night, gets completely annihilated and can ruin your worldview. And I think it's also important to point out, think about the time, you know, we're talking Mortal Kombat just came out, you know, Street Fighter, every representation of combat at that point was striking. Whether you're talking about video games, TV, movies, grappling was severely underrepresented in its effectiveness. 
there was a little bit with Seagal, what we talked about with Mel Gibson and the jujitsu influence and, and Lethal Weapon. But even in Seagal movies, if you notice, he really only uses like a couple of locks. It's always to make it more cinematic. He sets up like some almost like lazy Wing Chun style punches because that's all he could really figure out in order to get to like a throw or like some sort of like, you know, special effect graphic arm break from standing yeah. position because that was cinematic. They, they Everybody was agreed that doing these jump spinning hook kicks was the way to finish a dude no matter what, because that's what media was teaching us. And because we didn't have the reality of a fight everybody watched to prove otherwise. And it's weird that there were many people who didn't want any part of this because they were top shelf fighters making a lot of money. It was just a financial decision. And then you had a lot of guys who wanted absolutely to get fucking involved who were more or less overlooked because they, you know, once again, this was not the attempt to create a new sport or a spectacle. This was an infomercial for the Gracie brand. So they really steered it into the realm of has-beens, never was and the occasional goofball for the first like three or four of these events because it's about the spectacle. It's about the goofball carnival atmosphere. It's about the bullshit as pro wrestling as a real fight. And also the gimmick of the event itself in that it was presented, at least my memory of it was that it was the first ever style versus style tournament to determine inarguably the most effective martial art in the world. And that the way that it was sold, that gimmick, even though on the now that we see it on the, the this side of the curtain, we know that it was set up in every conceivable way for Gracie Jiu-Jitsu to shine and to be promoted as dominant. At the time as a kid, it was like, holy shit, this is real life Mortal Kombat. So on that, I want to ask you, what style did you think was going to win the first time you you watched one of these things? Oh, shit. Um, like, I didn't know the card when I like started watching it. Like, you know, I didn't see like who all is involved in this. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, later Pride events or where yeah. they brought out everyone as like a big reveal or something where, you know, you could see in uh, on the Internet where you see what the full card is. Yeah. It really just unveiled itself as it came across. And I will absolutely give you my picks as we talk about the fights awesome. for who, how I thought things were going to go versus how they actually went. Because, yes, there was a big wake up call for my striking only ass when I saw this where, you know, I knew how to do a like a basic hip throw and a basic arm throw. And that was the extent of my grappling knowledge when I watched this thing. And like many, many martial arts and martial arts kids, we watched Bloodsport. We watched these movies. We played the video games. We watched what was that like? something masters that was like a Saturday morning martial arts, like WMAC masters, the greatest worked martial arts show of all time. Man. Yep. Things like that. That's what we, that's what we were expecting because that's what we had been seeing. So this was a fucking wake up call. And on November 12th, 1993 in McNichols arena here in Denver, Colorado. And why Denver? Why did they choose Denver? Because it didn't have an athletic commission that would object to the event. That's why. So no need for weight classes, drug tests, or rules of any kind. They had carte blanche to do whatever fucking weird thing they wanted to do in here because boxing was governed by a boxing commission. Pretty much everything else was just Wild West, do whatever the fuck you want. We never really thought something like this would happen. We're exploiting a loophole in the Mile High City. 
And also, as anybody who has done grappling, wrestling, sambo, jiu-jitsu, you know your wind is good going into a... Uh, um, go, you know, when you, because just how you train, you train the way you fight, you have good endurance, you can literally grapple for hours before you gas out, and that gives you a level of confidence for a real fight, as opposed to doing, you know, 10 three-minute rounds of kickboxing or boxing or whatever at sea level or somewhere in between. So I feel like it was that perfect mix of, I know even though it's at a mile high, I can fucking grapple for two hours straight without an issue. And also, Colorado was still the Wild West as far as sports were concerned. Yeah, it just, it worked out perfectly on several fronts simultaneously. It was the Wild West. They could do whatever the fuck they wanted. They were able to run this this shit show. You couldn't book this today. Oh, not, not pretty much in any state except for like some weird, I assume, like states down south where... You know, you just give, you know, Cousin Jed the $50 bribe and he turns a blind eye to what you're doing in a fucking barn somewhere in the woods, like old timey boxing. You know, like when we talked about uh, like when we talked about bare knuckle boxing, both in the uh, Muldoon and the Black Champion episode where it's like, oh, boxing's illegal. Well, just bribe this guy and we'll go do it at a farm deep in the woods. Bring a thousand of your drunkest friends. We'll have a party. You can't really get away with this, especially with media pressure saying, what the fuck are you doing trying to make everything and everybody look bad, you piece of shit? As Cornette would say, it's a bit of an outlaw mud show. And uh, that's what it would have been. That's what this was in many ways. Oh, yeah. And it was a complete outlaw mud show. It was a total carny work. And it was brilliant because it birthed a completely new sport and a new art and it really brought to the forefront the culmination now at modern times when we talk about right now we the average person has access to a combined knowledge of martial arts that before this event was not a no one on this card knew as much as the average guy fighting in the ufc now does if you went on YouTube right now, and I'm talking about completely untrained people, people who have never been in a fight, never trained a fight, you can go on YouTube right now and watch tutorials, fights, grappling matches, challenges, and you technically would have a better knowledge of real fighting than most of the card going in to compete at McNichols Arena on that night. And it was a shit show. And one of the biggest shit shows was the meeting before the actual event, where most of the rules and regulations were hammered out. They didn't even like really have a plan in action until everybody was there and everybody was fighting about it. It's like, uh, you know, like the old, uh, you know, wrestling days where they would fight over who would be the referee to make sure nobody was taking sides and then deciding whether it would be three out of five. But how many were catch as catch can? How many were collar and elbow? How many were Greco-Roman and trying to make it fair as opposed to leaning into somebody else's wheelhouse, arguing until 11 o'clock at night and starting a match, you know, at 1130 in front of a crowd that's been waiting for three hours. It's the same thing we've been talking about time and time again. And the rules ended up being very sparse. Not a lot of people remember that originally in the first UFC, there were five minute rounds until somebody wins. No fight went a single round, but there were actually rounds. Eye gouging and biting were also forbidden, but groin shots were only discouraged with a $1,500 fine for doing so. Yeah, never forget that in, what was it, UFC 5? 
odd job from Austin Powers was finished with groin strikes. On four. The that was UFC yeah, four. UFC he, four. Look it up, nerds. Just, uh, just uh, you know, uh, uh, Google. Uh, or, I'm sorry, YouTube search Keith Hackney. You will see him punching a guy who turned out to be a horrific sexual predator in the balls until he had to give up. I am not cringy in the least when I watch it now, knowing what a piece of shit he is. But at the time, the rules were very much under contention because everybody was expecting certain allowances for their style. Some people thought they'd be able to wear kick pads. Some people thought they'd be able to wear like, you know, those like uh, fingerless Kempo gloves. Yeah. There was a lot of conversation about that. And like there was a heated argument because Horion didn't want anyone wearing, you know, the kick pads and only wrapping their hands under the knuckles. So nobody could throw hard shots without fucking up their hands. Once again, one of those things because of his experience and his family's experience in Valley Tudo in Brazil, he knew how many times people fuck up their hands with a bare knuckle power shot to the skull. And he wanted to make sure that nobody was going to avoid that if they were throwing a uh, you know, huge overhand to the, uh, the forehead. And in fact, a fight nearly broke out when Gracie asked Zane Frazier, a karate fighter who had some notoriety for beating up Frank Dukes at an event uh, Davies and Horion attended. How did we miss that on the last episode? According to Frazier, uh, Dukes stiffed him on money for teaching classes at Dukes' academy. Dukes later claimed that Frazier sucker punched him with brass knuckles at this exhibition uh, you know, convention and that he should have been the one in the first UFC where he would have dimmacked everyone. Because, of course, Frank Dukes would say that. So he got, he got um, dynamite kitted. Got it, got hit in the face with a sucker punch. Didn't lose any teeth, but, but that was probably Frank Duke's first admitted loss, right? He Well, he's claimed it was brass knuckles. Nobody else who was there saw brass knuckles. He's just fucking, uh, you know, trying to paint this, uh, you know, beating into the best uh, light possible. Because when you're trying to cast checks on the uh, you know back of a bullshit story of winning a Kumite tournament with knocking out 500 people or whatever the fuck, you have to protect your story as best as humanly possible. Duke's in it up. And when Horion insulted Frazier over the hand wrap arguments, asking if he'd run home and wrap his hands if somebody insulted him in the streets, a fight nearly broke out right there. It ended up being broken up and cooler heads prevailed, thankfully. But the rules were scattershot as hell, with Ken Shamrock being told he'd have to fight barefoot if he wanted to kick, but let Art Jimerson, the boxer, allowing him to wear a boxing glove. Hoist Gracie famously wore his gi, and Shamrock made fun of him for it, claiming Hoist clearly never had a pro fight because he was wearing a karate pajamas. <laughs> yes. Quotes that precede unfortunate events. Can you imagine the conversation backstage? Because it's it's absolutely strategic to say that you can't do these no hold barred fight with taped knuckles because when your hands are taped, you can wing with reckless abandon more than if you're truly bare knuckle. But a boxing glove gives you padding and it also the glove is so wide it acts like a backstop. So it's it's just feeding a grappler like Hoist Gracie. So I could imagine him just working him like, all right, bro, you can have a boxing glove if I get to keep my gi. Which never even came up in the conversation. But Jason DeLucia, who was an alternate in the First match, they had an alternate match before the pay-per-view, and who had fought Hoist Gracie in a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and Action Challenge match. It's on that DVD, VHS, whatever you can find. He tried to warn Shamrock, but Shamrock didn't care. In addition to maybe wondering why the promoter's brother was in the tournament, one might have pondered the advantage of a gi. Hoist Gracie famously wore his gi. 
Why is that an advantage? Well, for one, you look ridiculous if you don't know what the guy's doing. You look at Ken Shamrock, juiced, rock hard, looks like a monster, looks like an action hero. Then you have Hoist Gracie, who looks like a physics professor wearing a bathrobe. He's got this gi on. He's about 163 pounds. It looks kind of baggy. It doesn't go all the way down. It doesn't even look like a cool, like, you know, Cobra Kai gi. It just looks like a like he's wearing his martial arts uniform. And it gives off this very unassuming presence when you don't understand that it really what it is, is you are now giving yourself a third hand. You have a, a grip anywhere on your body and it is such a ridiculous advantage when you understand how to use a gi. Because a gi, uh, a judo gi, a karate gis are lightweight, they absorb your sweat, uh, make you slippery, it's just more ceremonial, but a judo gi or jujitsu gi, same thing really, it keeps you dry. It keeps the friction in place. People can't slip out of things. It's kind of like when we talked about, uh, you know, footlocks wearing shoes. It's a very similar principle. When you are a smaller, weaker person, a jujitsu gi lets you slow things down. It keeps your grip dry, even though you may be sweating your balls off. It takes away a lot of speed and strength advantages from your opponent. And literally the only person who knew that looking at this uh, meeting was a guy who wasn't actually in the tournament. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. And I, I appreciate the irony in him trying to warn Shamrock and Shamrock being like, this guy's never been in a fight and then tap into a move that he didn't even know what happened. And keep in mind, we can be a little smug about that now. We have the the benefit of hindsight, of decades, of jujitsu becoming huge, of MMA becoming a mainstream sport, decades of struggle and building and education to the point where even the occasional dipshit sitting at the bar at the uh, you know sporting uh, bar will look up at the screen and actually have occasionally intelligent opinions, despite him never putting on a gi, never putting on a pair of gloves, never stepping foot in a fighting gym, the same way that people will understand strategy for team sports like hockey or football without playing it, it's mainstream now. But back then, nobody knew what the fuck this guy was doing. You know, it was just like, oh no, I have to beat up this 160 pound uh, little goofball. Well, I guess if I'm gonna earn my $50,000, which is, you know, not a lot of money after tax, that's what you're going to have to do. And in that, it was a brilliant maneuver because I honestly was like, that's the one guy that can't win. I had my opinions of what I thought was going to happen, but I was like, what the fuck is this guy even doing out here? And that was the okie doke. That was the work. That's where it was pro wrestling. They put him out there as a setup. He looks unassuming. The gi looks like it's just a guy in a karate uniform, and he's a killer. And it was brilliant. Because you had this lineup. You had the hugely muscled, super aggressive Ken Shamrock. You had the boxer who, uh, you know, was like a St. Louis legend. You had guys like, you know, Kevin Rogier and, you know, who was like a, like, even though he was very much overweight, he was still like, a, you had a great record in kickboxing. You had all the stats and the size and everything we were taught about fighting on the table. And then you see this like, you know, goofy 26, I think he was year old, you know, guy still wearing his uh, judo gi kind of looking at the floor being very unassuming and unaggressive. He wasn't trying to like pro wrestling or boxing hype this whole thing up. He was the, in a sense, 
if we would call it a work, this is where it would be the work. He was the, uh, you know, he was the guy, you know, waiting for the marks to step into the trap. He was the, the wrestler pretending to have a limp, waiting for the townies to come up on stage and challenge for that $25. The scene is set. The rules were very much fought over. Ken Shamrock was very angry because he agreed to fight Shoeless, which he had never done before, which is very much a difficult transition if you're used to wrestling in oh, yeah. shoes. It's, it's completely different. The footwork, the way you have traction versus slide, all of those components are now almost switched when you go from wearing either boxing or amateur wrestling shoes to being barefoot and it's a total advantage an, another advantage in the gracie uh column so now we have the format we have the fighters we have the location we have the rules we have the concepts as carny and lopsided and weird as they can be and that is where we are going to put a pin in this grenade because it is about to explode here in denver colorado back in 1993 and we're going to come back with our next episode we've set the stage it's time for the actual tournament we're going to talk about these fights we're going to talk about why they were a lopsided carny works in many senses how some people didn't expect X to happen when Y happened. And even the promoters might have made a mistake or two that they had to cover up after the fact and where that led from there. And like I said, we've been talking about how real fights can be pro wrestling. And that's something we've been talking about since day one of this show, because pro wrestling used to be an on the line, putting your reputation, your body, your livelihood on the line against everybody from the top talent to the townies to the risk of screw jobs. And that's what is about to be faced here in what Horion expected to be the international huge launch of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu worldwide. We'll see where it goes. You know where it goes, but we're going to talk details as only we can. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram. We post weird photos. We have a lot of fun. But for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert, and for now, good night. Cut print martini!